Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And I think the saying is, uh, if you could see behind the fourth wall, uh, boy, I'm telling you, this uh, this show just came together. Um, I'm in a cabin for a while, and I uh, have I've been having a really hard time getting internet here. So finally, I sent away for what's called a jetpack. Uh, it's a mobile hotspot, and it's supposed to be really good in this area. Well, uh, it was falling apart just a little while ago. But anyway, I think we're going to be able to do the show. I have uh, Bill in the uh, in the wings to take over if I drop out. I guess from now on, I'm going to have to rent a hotel <laughs> until I get this uh, figured out. But uh, I want to talk about the guests. We have uh, Matthew Roberts we're starting out with. Uh, he had a really amazing career. We're going to be talking about that. He was on the USS Roosevelt and then he was in naval intelligence after that for 16 years, and he'll be coming on and and at first. And then uh, Kevin Gnuth, the science uh, science guy involved in the SCU and in the UFO world, uh, he just uh, texted me saying that his computer battery blew up, uh, and he's scrambling like crazy trying to make it so he can be here on the uh, second segment. Don't fret. If not, uh, we're going to keep uh, Matthew going, but uh, we'll, we're going to be in touch with uh, Kevin along the way, and uh, we should be able to uh, figure that all out. Now, the issue I have here, um, I can't open any windows, any other windows or anything like that. So uh, I, I, it's going to be a little bit clunky. I'll do my best to do as well as I can here. Uh, the blog this week by Charles Lear is UFOs over Indonesia. I've already gotten some feedback from people there that have read it. And uh, so check that out. And he is going to do uh, an audio blog of that. And I wish him good luck with some of those names he has to pronounce. That should be very interesting. And that usually comes out at the end of the week, every week. So uh, we have uh, on July 6th, we have, we're going to have uh, possibly, most likely, a three-hour show, a special called uh, the Berkshire UFO show. And uh, you'll know more about that, but it's going to be pretty exciting. I'll talk more about that as we get closer to it. So stay tuned to hear what that's about. But for right now, uh, we are going to bring in our guest for the first segment. Uh, Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, did I come through clear that whole time? Yes, you did. You did. Oh, <laughs> A milestone, a milestone. So, yeah. So, Matthew, uh, thank you so much for for joining us. And, uh, you know, I have uh, some people have sent me in a question. I, I talked to you a little bit um, off air about it. But for now, can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners uh, your background and uh, why you're here tonight to talk? Um, what, to yeah. About so uh, I, I, you know, I was in the Navy for 16 years. Uh, I joined in 2004. Um. I joined uh, as a cryptologist, um, and that, that's what I was the entire time I was in. Um, so I, I uh, in two in twenty fifteen, I was on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt. That's where I was stationed um, for the Gimbal event, um, and I remember that. Um, and after that, I uh, transferred to the Office of Naval Intelligence, where I ended my naval career just four years shy of retirement. Um, and so I, you know, I guess I'm here because, you know, we got this thing going on with contact in the desert. Uh, I'm going to be on a panel 
hosted by Ryan Sprague. Uh, and I'm going to be talking with Jason Turner and Gary Voorhees of the Nimitz Encounter. Um, and that's going to be Saturday, June 26th. So don't miss that. That should be fine. Oh, all right. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's in, where is that Las Vegas, right? No, that, so it's going to be an online virtual event. Oh, um, that's right. Of course. Yeah. What am I thinking? Yes. I'm getting Contact things in the mixed desert up. this year is virtual. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I participated last year in, uh, the international UFO Congress. It was an online platform and it turned out really well. And yeah. uh, so the way things are going looks like next year will be live again. And there's always a, a huge turnout with that. So that should be really good. And they, they probably won't have internet issues either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the, when, when was the first you heard about the, uh, you know, the Nimitz uh, incident in, in 2004 and, and, and the videos that, that came out later, when did you first hear about any of that stuff? Uh, so, I mean, the gimbal footage, uh, the now infamous gimbal footage was something that I saw back in 2015 while I was stationed on board the Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and, uh, a lot of people asked me, oh, was there a longer version? Did you see a longer version? Was it, was it, uh, clearer? And the answer to that is no. I, I saw the exact same footage uh, that has been released. That's what I saw back in 2015, and that's what I see now. Um, the Nimitz uh, footage. So, from the a lot of people get this mixed up. Uh, the Nimitz footage and the the gimbal footage. So, the Theodore Roosevelt uh, two clips are from the Theodore Roosevelt. That's the Go Fast and the Gimbal. And I saw those originally both back in 2015. Uh, I didn't know anything about uh, the Nimitz encounter until the, uh, the New York Times article came out, obviously, with the, with the declassified footage. I, I was working at ONI at that time. Um, and so, you know, it was uh, kind of, you know, when, when the article came out and I saw this footage and I'm watching this footage on my cell phone, it was kind of immediately jarring to me because... Um, I couldn't make sense of why I'm now watching on my cell phone something that I first saw when I was in a skiff, you know, behind closed doors. Uh, so I wasn't sure how it got out there. Um, but reading mm -hmm. the article, uh, in the New York times and seeing that, you know, people like Harry Reid were quoted, um, they were talking, uh, so I, I thought, well, this has got to be you know, some kind of legitimate public release, you know? Um, and I, of course, you know, people in my family started calling me uh, <laughs> and it was very uncomfortable. I, I did not want to have that conversation with them because uh, my job was something that I never discussed with my family. Um, so that was that was incredibly uncomfortable for me. Uh, I mean, I, I was first alerted to the article by my brother. He, he texted the, the link to it and the link to the footage. And uh, he texted that to me and I knew he'd be calling me about it later. And sure enough, he did. And uh, I just kind of choked as I was talking to him because it was it, was, it felt so wrong. You know, I, I didn't I didn't and, want and to talk about it. Uh, and it, did it have anything to do with your NDA or at all? Or w what made you uncomfortable about it? 
Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, being uh, in in that field, uh, I sign a blanket NDA, you know, that uh, anything classified, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I never even discussed the nature of my job with my family. They, they had no idea what I did. Um, they just wow. knew I couldn't talk about it. Um, and it actually, even towards the end of my career, I was talking to my dad about something very technical and he just kind of looked at me very puzzled and he's like, what do you do all day? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, uh, kind of dodged stuff. the question. <laughs> yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, um, so a question that comes up a lot of times and um, is you probably know things that you can't talk about. And I guess, um, but can I ask you if you, does that involve UAPs as well? Um, Or is that something you can't even say? I mean, I, so there, I I will say that, you know, there was, uh, there were, there was a lot more that happened uh, during that Roosevelt incident that I would love to discuss, but I can't. Um, okay. And, and well, you know, let me, let me, yeah, go ahead. Some of that, some of that is just very kind of uh, boring, and, um, and and people would be very uh, not amazed by it. But I think it's relevant. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know. It's just not something I can talk about. Well, I love your poster in the back, The Day the Earth Stood Still, by the oh. way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Uh, so listen, when you were, uh, you, you said earlier that you have seen the same video that we have all seen. Does yeah. that mean that um, that's all that exists, or does that mean that's all that you were able to see? Um, that's all I saw at the time. I, I don't know if there's more footage that exists. I would not be surprised if there was, uh, but I, mm-hmm. I can't confirm. I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I but it, to me, it would be very surprising if there wasn't more, you know. On Okay. On the three videos that were declassified and were going around the gimbal, the go fast, and uh, what was the third one? Um, I'm the just- tic-tac. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> of course. Um, so those three videos that were going around, uh, I did hear someone that was a pilot say that he knew that the GoFast was a lock on a drone. And uh, have you heard people talk about that in particular? Oh, I've, I've heard people say all kinds of things that... Uh that it's uh, a drone, it's a balloon, it's uh, swamp gas. I mean, you name it. I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> the thing about this is that um, a lot of these people that are, that, that are so-called self-proclaimed debunkers, uh, a lot of them don't know what they're talking about. They've never spent a day in the Navy. They, they don't know how these things work. Uh, they don't know how our aircraft work. They don't know how our radar systems work. Uh, this was not a drone. I, in my opinion, um, this was not some kind of technology. I think that would be easy to come by. 
you couldn't go down to Radio Shack and buy this. Um, yeah. So I, and, and you know, it just, it, it really bothers me that um, people will buy into this, uh, buy into these theories by these debunkers that have no idea what they're talking about. Because what it portrays is it portrays us in the Navy as a bunch of, you know, Barney Fife's out there on the water and we couldn't find our way out of a paper bag. You know what I mean? And and that is just not the case. If there is something that is unidentified, it's unidentified because we have exhausted um, every avenue uh, to explain it. Um, You better believe that. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, if one of the things, go, go ahead. I mean, think about it for a second. We've got a billion plus dollar asset, multi billions of dollars worth of technology uh, out there floating in a strike group. And to, and I guess the public maybe think that uh, it's perfectly okay that there's some kind of unidentified aerial target just, um, you know, flying around willy nilly and that we aren't going to try to do our best to get to the bottom of that. It's just, it's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. Uh, these pilots, they're trained. Uh, if you're taken off the deck of an aircraft carrier and landing on the deck of an aircraft carrier, this is not your first rodeo. You know, you have seen uh, these things that fly in the sky, whether they be balloons, you know what you're looking at. Um, or if, Or if you're talking about, I think there was one guy who says it was a, you know, a commercial airliner, um, which is just, I know who you mean, Mick West impossible. Um, yeah. And and it's impossible on so many different levels. I mean, but you know, that's just the voice of inexperience. I mean, I I can appreciate that they're trying to figure it out, but, uh, if you're not going to do the research and, um, and you're going to speak out of turn, um, you better be prepared prepared for the blowback that is coming because, uh, I mean, we don't have millions of dollars worth of sensors and equipment on an aircraft and on our ships, um, y- you know, for for no reason, and nobody knows how to use it. That's just that's insane. I mean, but well, that's what these debunkers would have you believe. You know, that's right. There's a long time. Uh, UFO researcher that passed away a few years ago, Stanton Friedman. And he used to say, you know, it was by proclamation. That's how they would, they would, uh, they would debunk something by proclamation. Right. And, you know, uh, you talk about the military. Um, I would say in the private sector or however you want to term it, we've been dealing with the debunkers uh, all along, you know, since the, what they say, the modern UFA, UFO age starting in the, the four, late forties. Um, so there's been, there's always been the debunkers and a lot of, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with that is it's a fear-based thing, you know, like what is this? And we can't explain it. So we have to do something about it. So I think it's based in that way. And I know what you're talking about, um, with all, with all the equipment. And I, I had uh, Mick West, um, on talking about his thoughts on what he thought the, I think it was the, uh, the Tic Tac was. And then I had Kevin Day on to, to basically tell his side why it couldn't be what Mick West was saying. And when he got done, 
Mick West said something like, well, I can see now why it wouldn't be, you know, an F-18 Hornet, um, you know, that type of thing. Because, of course, there was no transponders and the thing, the all the sensing equipment would recognize what it was and, you know, on yeah. and on and on and on with what you're talking about. Billions of dollars worth of equipment is not going to um, get it that wrong. Um, and, the, you know, the thing, you know, I don't know if you've heard this or not heard this, but these characteristics have been around for a long time. And so when you talk about if it's military, if it's Russian uh, black project or whatever, or Chinese uh, possibly, well, they were doing the same thing, you know, 50 years ago. And, uh, you know, what would be the answer to that not being available or, or used in any, you know, conflict that we'd have? It's right. It's yeah. Very and, debatable. You know, and some of these uh, there, there are people, too, that believe that this is our technology. But uh, at, at least in, in in the Roosevelt incident, I mean, you can you can see how that's not the case because. We, we, we first encountered these things when we were doing workups off the coast of Florida, right? And so, mm. and, and I've been involved in tests where they're, they're testing new equipment. Uh, everyone is informed. Everybody knows what's happening so that there are no surprises. Uh, and, and this was not the case with this incident. Uh, nobody was told anything. Um, and, and and in order to believe that this was our technology, uh, knowing that, okay, well, when we were deployed, they came back. So we were in the Gulf, and we encountered them again. So Amazing. Amazing. Right. So this is not our technology. We would not put our own technology in now a live fire scenario where you've got jets taking off that are armed, you know, that's a very dangerous situation. And knowing the capabilities of these craft, um, if we had them, we don't have many, uh, and they would be multi-billion dollar assets. And you're going to put that in the line of fire. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's absurd, really. So many, so many arguments. And uh, uh, we, we get questions in chat. I'm going to pop this one up. And uh, this is from Anonymous Rex. He, did you or any other witnesses on the ship report having mental contact or repeating dreams after these events took place? Thank you for your service. Um, <laughs> so report, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a difficult thing because in order to report something in the military, there has to be a chain um, for that to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And th there would have not been any chain for that to have happened there. So in other words, there's no one person you can go to and report. I'm having crazy dreams, uh, now since this incident, uh, or I'm having experiences now. Uh, if there was such a person, it, they were unknown to me, you know, uh, and that, I, I I think that that kind of thing is probably uh, changing now with the task force. They're becoming better about having people report, pilots in particular reporting um, when they see these things up in the air. Um, but but back in 2015, there was there was no such thing that I was aware of. And you know the the one thing you talked about earlier, 
you were saying, why would they have these things in the line of fire of such important assets? What really has puzzled me all along, and I've mentioned this to people who have been on this show, Gary Voris and Kevin Day and uh, I think someone else. Uh, why wasn't, when this was happening, I'm talking about the Nimitz case, of course, before your time, but I'm asking you to speculate. Why wasn't the military really interested in what these things are and tracking them down? I mean, why why did it just kind of go away and, and kind of not, you know, kind of like someone supposedly took the bricks away that had the data on it um, from the um, Hawkeye, but, you know, that type of thing. But they didn't want to find out what it was. I find that very puzzling. You know, I I don't know. My, my speculation would be uh, the same reason why this happened in the public sphere. You know, why science has ignored this. Because y- you have to ignore it. You have to ignore it or you have to change your worldview. Those are your two choices. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so that's what's happening here. And, and, you know, a, a lot of people now are waiting for this report. They think, oh, you know, the scientific community is now going to, they're going to come in line, you know, and they're, <laughs> they're going to be there. But I don't, I don't see that happening. I think, I think that what people don't understand about science is that uh, it is a religion. Um, and it is a group of people that writ large are practicing their worldview. Um, mm. And so now you're going to ask them to change their worldview. And people are not going to be so willing to do that. I, I've seen evidence of this in people who study consciousness. Uh, there's one such guy who was a, uh, he was a, um, you know, a, uh, a Nobel laureate. Um, in physics and now he studies consciousness um hmm. and there there's a a great guy mark gober who has this uh podcast that's just 12 episodes that he went along with his book but he talks to scientists that are studying consciousness and there was one woman who was presenting her work at a scientific conference and one of her colleagues came up to her and said you know i don't care what evidence you produce i'm just never going to believe it <laughs> and, and so that's this is science today, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and and this is something that you know they 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 like to talk about Galileo, you know, and yeah. oh, we were science, uh, they ignored him or whatever, and but they don't understand that they're on that side of the argument, right? I mean, today, I people like me and experiencers and people who've seen these things are saying, come, you know, take a look through our telescope, and science writ large is saying. I want nothing to do with that witchcraft, you know, and that's, yeah, I'm going to be talking. Our, the next guest is a scientist and, yeah. uh, and this is basically one of the things he wants to talk about the most when he comes on this episode, I mean, the next episode, um, barring that his computer battery <laughs> is indeed replaced. <laughs> but, uh, um, so I want to tell people that are in the chat, if you want, um, I'm not going to be able to post a lot of it's, it's really difficult with my internet, but, um, and it says I can't participate in chat or anything like that. But anyway, if you want to post a question for our guests, please put them in all caps and I'll, I'll try to put them up on the screen if it makes sense to put up at the time. So, um, I don't know what, what's going to happen with this report. 
Um, I, I, I'll tell you, I got feeling, you know, a gut feeling is that it's going to be minimized, whatever uh, is found out, but I don't know for sure. I mean, it'll be interesting. Well, I, I'll say this too, that, uh, you know, a lot of people may be waiting for the government to announce that it's aliens, right? But something that you have to understand though, too, is that uh, to say that it's alien um, is a much higher threshold to cross right if you if you would have to have evidence that they came here from another planet and how would we possibly have that you know i so i think at best what we could say is that it's non-human intelligence um and and that's probably the best we could do at this point um that's a very good point yeah because otherwise the, the evidence we would have to have we would have to have you know maybe uh, a picture of the surface of some planet and see these beings on the surface of it. And we're, we're not yeah. going to have that. We don't yeah. have the technology that would allow us to see that. So, so I, I think, you know, hold on to the alien theory because that's not going to be proven for quite some time. Um, right. Right. Hey, so uh, uh, someone posted a question, but before I post it up there, I want to ask you this. Um, what did you think when you first saw that video? Your first thought was right away. Did you say, what the heck is this? I mean, and the people that was observing it with you at the same time, what was, what was the general feeling of what you were looking at? Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, I first became aware of it after we had finished our workups and, um, a, a buddy of mine who, kind of worked more closely with the pilots in Intel came into my space and he said, Hey, check this out. And so me and all my guys, we gathered around my computer and I pulled it up and we watched it. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in there Um, (laughs) (laughs) because it was just, to me, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I could not make sense of what, I was looking at in this. Was footage. this a gimbal one in particular? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The yeah. Gimbal footage. That one I think is the most incredible. Of course, the, the, uh, not to take anything away from the Tic Tac, but on the three of them, that one is really pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, I, I personally, I watched it over and over again. We yeah, went on a nine month. If you did. Yeah. We went on a nine month long deployment. Yeah. There's a, there's an image of it. <laughs> So uh, we went on a nine month long deployment and I would once in a while while I'm sitting at my station, I would just pull it up and watch it again, you know, and, and I, I watched it over and over and over. And it got to the point that, you know, my guys would come into the shop and they would see that I was watching that and they'd walk past (laughs) me and they're like, are you watching that again? You know, what, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Well, here, here's a, a question that's fitting uh, from Mary Grace Kirby. How has all this changed you? Oh, so, you know, I one of the reasons why I left uh, ONI is because while I was working there, I began to have these very uh, powerful and profound follow-on experiences with the phenomenon where I had... Uh, beings in my room at night uh so wow i I wasn't ready for that one yes (laughs) um yeah but um but let's hear about it yeah so i mean it uh 
it has absolutely um, changed me uh, <laughs> uh, in every way imaginable. Um, it's it's been, it was it was incredibly emotional at the time, uh, but. Uh, one of the reasons why I wrote the book I wrote is because this is such a complex issue. And I, I wanted people to understand what I had been through. Um, and if I can lend my voice of credibility to that experience or end of things, and that's what I'm going to do. Um, I, I don't like the fact that this has been locked up and people aren't talking about it. Uh, I think that we've done ourselves an enormous disservice in that. And um, I, you know, so for me, there was no, there was no question as to whether or not I was going to talk about my own personal experiences because I knew they were real, you know, and I'm not mentally ill. Uh, I, I mean, I, I have been told that I am the most level-headed person that a lot of people have ever met in their lives, you know? And so for me to be that and to come out and say, I had non-human entities in my room at night, um, and not only that they were there, but that they taught me things. <laughs> That's the most wow. incredible part of this, is what I was taught. Um, and... I will tell the scientific community right now, if you are listening, um, this is not a joke. Uh, I, I was taught things about human psychology. I was taught things about consciousness and how to bring that about in the psyche. And this process that they put me through was the process that they want me to put others through, right? It, it is reproducible. It is predictable. You can study it. Uh, so scientists, if you're listening, um, I, I'm ready to tell you what I know, you know. And let me ask you this. Was this a two-way street, like a communication between you and them? Or were these, some people have called them like downloads. I've heard people say right. it's like a download. Well, how would you ex- describe that experience? Uh, so I... I'll start off by saying this. So this completely changed my worldview. Um, I was not a believer in, uh, I never thought about consciousness. It wasn't something that really ever occurred to me. Um, I did not believe in, you know, angels or uh, spirits or ghosts or any of that stuff, right? I thought when you die, you're worm food and that's all there is to it. Um, but they showed me otherwise. Um, I, I had dreams. So uh, here's, here's one instance. I had a dream in which I was sitting across from an elderly gentleman during these experiences, right? And he was teaching me about human psychology. Uh, and as I woke up that morning, I, I mean, he was telling me things. Like, it, it was like a sit-down. It was like a classroom, <laughs> So he's teaching me about this uh, and I'm asking him questions and he's answering me, you know, uh, it, this was significant and profound. And as I'm waking up in the morning, I hear the name Robert Moore running through my head. So I wrote it down. I, I had no idea who this man was. 
uh, I thought, you know, maybe he wrote some books or something. So I, I looked him up when I got home from work that day and found out that he was a Jungian psychoanalyst. And I was, I was reading one of his books. The book was called The Archetype of Initiation. And that was when I first began to understand the totality of the experiences that I was having. It was an initiation, a consciousness initiation. And that they have always been doing this. Uh, this is this is what they do for us, um, and that's their job. Uh, they make it their job, um, and, and these experiences are incredibly emotional. They're powerful. They are terrifying. They are all of that. Um, and but but in the end, if you do it correctly, you'll understand because you will come into this higher consciousness, and then it's like, oh, that's what all this is about. Right. And so as I was reading Archetype of Initiation, I put it down one day and Robert Moore's picture was on the back of the book. And I, I saw the picture and I was like, that is the guy from my dream. You know, I was like, this is unreal, you know. Uh, and I'm assuming he's not with us anymore. No, he he uh, he passed away about a year before my experiences began. But um and let but me ask was, you this, were you, go ahead. But he was a, he was a significant, uh, I mean, he had a PhD. He wrote several books all about this uh, consciousness stuff um, and, and, about, and about Jungian psychoanalysis because that's what he did for a living. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that's what he did and that, that, that's exactly what he was teaching me in my dreams. I still remember the dream. Uh, I remember the things that he told me, um, some of which I put in the book. Um, and uh, it's just, it's incredible. Now, can you, were you able to differ uh, to um, actually understand whether you're having a dream or if there was actually entities? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I did have dreams where there were entities. Some of the entities I had seen in my room uh, beforehand. Um, and and then I would see them in a dream. Uh, and it was just, it was, the dreams were just bizarre. I mean, like one, one dream I had, I, I saw this guy in my room that uh, he looked like a yard gnome. This is the only way I can describe him. I mean, he was short. Uh, he had a locked, curled white beard. Um, and and his hair was the same way. Uh, and he was just staring at me across my nightstand, you know. And, um, and I saw him later in a dream. So I, I, you know, I probably could have been diagnosed with something like, uh, what's that, where you have to go to sleep? um narcolepsy oh, because I, oh, yeah. I would have these episodes where all of the sudden i would get very tired and i knew i was going to go to sleep um so in one such instance i i was coming home from work and i started to feel heavy and i was like i am going to fall asleep i need to get to a bed right now um and so i i ran upstairs and i jumped in my bed and i jumped right into this dream <laughs> it was me and this small man were flying through the air. Um, and it was cloudy outside. 
there was a storm, so there was fog and everything. I mean, and we landed right outside uh, the building where I worked, um, where the flagpole was. And he's standing there and he's pointing at this beetle on the ground. It was it was bizarre because I, I had seen that beetle by the flagpole and it was dead. And it was it's like the size of my fist. It was like the biggest beetle I've ever seen in my life, right? So he's standing there and he's pointing at it and looking at me. Uh, and then, you know, we go inside. I, I meet some other entities. Uh, and then we go up to my workspace. And I assume that we're going to my desk for some reason. And um, so we're walking past one of my coworkers' desks and there's an old woman sitting there and I knew his grandmother had just passed away. And uh, as we approached, she jumped up and she said, have you seen my grandson? And I said, yes, yeah, I've seen him. And she's like, well, how is he, you know? And I said, he's going to be just fine. Um, and I told her it's time to rest now. And so she nodded and um, she held out her hand and I, I took it and I, I walked her into the light that had opened up. There was this wall of light that just opened up and I, I walked her into it and um, that was it. I mean, it was, so they, they showed me, I mean, I, I, I was shown that, you know, death is not final. Um, I, I could meet these people after they had died. Um, and, you know, these were things that I was resisting. I, they, were, they told me all kinds of things. They played music for me that I just, I was like, no, this, that is not what this is. One, one of the songs was uh, Coldplay's Hymn for the Weekend that they played very early on. And the first lyrics talk about angels sent from up above. And I was like, no, no, you know, that is, that is not what this is. Um, and then they were like, well, let's, let's show you. And so they did. Uh, and um, so, you know, the idea of angels in the Bible, um, I, and I can see how the experience that I went through is what underlies all the world's religions and gave birth to them. Um, that much is cl wow. absolutely clear to me. Wow. Well, you know, I, I got to tell you, I think you're, you're, you're actually very brave to talk about this stuff in, in a public forum, but it, since you're sharing this, I will be happy to share something that happened to me about my grandmother. It's probably not related in any type of way, but it was very interesting. I was very close to her. Um, extremely close to her and she passed away. I was not able to go to the funeral. She lived in Georgia. My father flew down, was there and he came back. And uh, my father, when he was back the first night, I had a dream that my grandmother was standing there and it was like the most realistic dream I ever had. Yeah. <clears throat> she was wearing a long pink dress. Now she always had her hair up always. And she had her hair down and she had pearl necklace on. And so I described it to my father and he turned white. He said, that's exactly how she was buried, mm. you know, and yeah. whether that means anything or not, but that's always stuck with me because I was only like 15 or something at the time. And mm. whether there was anything to it, it was coincidence, whatever it was, she said, don't worry about me anymore. I'm okay. That's what yeah. she said to me in the dream. So, uh, 
and, and I don't know if there's anything to it. And I know this is a show about UFOs, right? <laughs> but this is still, uh, you know, uh, a, a jag that I think is fascinating. Well, I mean, so this is this is a show about UFOs, but all of this stuff is related, right? Because it all comes back to consciousness and what that is. Uh, and so you can't talk about consciousness without acknowledging the fact that there is no such thing as death. Uh, and I, I, I know that these initiations have been practiced um, in ancient times. They were what we call the Greek mysteries. There were the Roman mysteries, the Gnostic mysteries. Uh, they've all had their mystery schools, all these religions. Um, and it was all about this experience. And once you finished this experience, it was said that you would come back to your family uh, and you would be unafraid of death uh, and completely changed. Um, because, because you'll know, right? Because you'll have experiences like you had with your grandmother. Um, you'll have experiences where you may be told something in a dream that something is going to happen and then it happens. Or you may be introduced to some concept you didn't know about in a dream and yet you can wake up in your waking life and Google that. And there it is, you know. And, and how can you deny that? Uh, you can't. Um, at least for me, it got to a point where I, I was resisting all of this stuff and I did not want to believe it. And I, after a while, I, I realized, well, I better just believe it because otherwise they're going to show me and that's going to be very uncomfortable. Um, and and <laughs> because when you resist, they will show you and uh, it, it will be incredibly painful and uh, in some cases terrifying, you know, that, you're, that your worldview is just shattered in this way. You know? And when you say pain, when you say painful, do you mean emotionally painful? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, part of this. So this is a natural occurrence in in the human psyche, and it takes place in the brain, right? And and so in my case, I began to enter this state of incredibly deep depression. It was the deepest depression I have ever felt in my life. I There were days I would come home from work and all I could do was lay on the floor of my bedroom and cry like a baby, shivering under a blanket, and my teeth are chattering. I mean, that's how much pain I was in. But in terms of science, you know, uh, Depression like this will increase neuroplasticity in the brain. Um, and so you're forming new neural connections, right? And in doing so, uh, you are becoming in touch with consciousness, the universal consciousness. Um, and once you experience that, uh, it is absolutely undeniable. Um, and, and in going through this experience, there will be things that will happen that will be extreme coincidences that uh, will just rock your world because the only way to logically come to any conclusion about that is that everything must be purposeful. Um, there's no way this is a coincidence. Uh, you'll have impossible coincidences that will happen um, and, and that will, that will terrify you. Now, um, when was this happening? Were you actually not in naval intelligence at the time, were you? Yeah, I, w I was working at O&I when this was happening to me. Uh, and did you share it with anyone? 
I'm not saying um, from there, but in general. I I did. I talked to people about it. Uh, my direct coworkers. I would. I I talked to them. Uh, not initially. Um, initially, I kept it to myself until I knew what it was about. And you know, that's one of the things that I want people to understand about what I did. I I had no preconceived notions about this. I didn't. I didn't follow ufology. I was not a believer in any of this. Uh, I didn't even know what was real, what was fact, what was fiction. I didn't know anything, you know? So, so when I had something that was happening to me, I would then drill down on that. I'd say, okay, uh, let's drill down on that and see what's there. Uh, because that was my analytical mind. I was, I'm a trained analyst, you know? And so, uh, something else would happen. And then I would drill down on that. Uh, and, and, and so I was very careful about reaching conclusions with this. And I, and I, I used my book to kind of walk readers through that, um, through my experience so they can understand how I arrived at the conclusions that I did. Um, and I, yeah, I would talk to people at work about it. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> Uh, my immediate coworkers, uh, we would go down to the cafeteria and eat lunch every day. But on Wednesdays, we had what was called Woke Wednesdays. And uh, they would just ask me about life, and I would answer their questions. Uh, <laughs> you know, almost like I was some kind of a guru or something. Um, but they, they like to really? pick my brain, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You know what I'd like to do? I'm I'm going to go uh, non-conventional. I'm going to put you on the spot, too, at the same time. Uh, do you mind hanging out with us? Do you <laughs> mind doing the whole show with us? Do you have the time to do that? Are you willing to? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And uh, and then here's the second part of the question. <laughs> I'd like to bring uh, Professor Kevin Knuth in at the same time. Oh, okay. And I'd like for him to hear what you say, because I would like to also question you about something you said earlier and and uh, I'd like for Kevin to kind of uh, maybe uh, comment on it so I'm gonna bring him in right now Kevin how are you hello how are you <clears throat> good good welcome back it was uh, thank you it's been a, a little while since you've been on but uh, you we were talking here uh, it's been a really an amazing conversation we've been having here. And uh, one of the things that uh, Matthew brought up earlier is, you know, why isn't science, you know, interested in this? And here, here's the question or, 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 you know, have any curiosity about it. And I know that's that really bothers you as well. But here's the question I'm going to ask you, Matthew, at the same time. And that is uh, and, and Kevin, we'll get to introducing you here in a minute. But um, you said earlier that um, you're ready for science to look at what you've been going through. How would you, how would that look to you? What would that look like? To me? Yes. How uh, would they study what you're saying? So I, you know, something that has been revealed to me that by them, uh, and this was not a coincidence, was that they look for certain personality types. Because those personality types are more likely... Uh, to be able to finish this process. And and everybody that I know that has been initiated, I've asked them to take a personality test. And without fail, every time they are an INFJ personality type. And there is a reason for that. Um, and and, can, you, and the, can you explain what that is? I'm sorry, INSJ? 
INFJ. So it's like, uh, you know, you've, you've got kind of a calm personality. You don't, uh, you don't tend to work for yourself. Uh, you're not selfish. You, you tend to everything you do. Uh, the work that you do tends to be for others. Um, you're a people pleaser. Um, you, you, uh, you work for the sake of work that has to be done and not necessarily because you're looking for some fame out of it. You have a strong sense of, you know, right and wrong. Um, you're more introverted and that is, that is the key. Uh, that is also a huge key to this. Um, and, and I'm talking about introverted in terms of the, the Jungian psychological definition of introversion, not, I mean, he coined those terms and they've been kind of, you know, uh, they, they don't really hold true to what he originally, um, intended them to be. Uh, so, uh, they're, they're looking for introverts. They want people who are uh, in tune with that internal aspect of themselves. Um, there's that old saying, uh, know thyself, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's not just uh, hocus pocus. Um, you really do have to know yourself to get through this process. Um, and so, so this is what they look for. They, they look for this INFJ personality type um and even even still some of them don't don't complete the process um so kevin i I know i'm sorry just a second Uh, kevin you know we brought you in late i know you replaced the battery on your laptop thank you for doing that i don't know how you did it so quickly but (laughs) glad you're here but um uh, uh matthew is an extremely balanced uh guy and he's had these things happen to him you know these experiences happen you know he was in naval intelligence i'm not sure if you read his uh his background um but he chance to thank you yeah but um so this has been happening to him what even when he was in naval intelligence he was on board the uss roosevelt and saw the original you know the gimbal film and all that in the beginning but he's had these experiences happen since then that has profoundly changed his life that somehow, would you say they're, they must be related? Wouldn't you, Matthew? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, at the time I, back in 2015, when I was watching this footage, I, I felt kind of sick, right? Because not only was this changing my worldview, but I got this powerful feeling that they were there for me. Um, and I thought at the time, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Why, why am I thinking that? Um, but the feeling was so powerful. Uh, and then I started to feel paranoid that someone was going to find out that they were there for me. Uh, and that, that too um, was unsettling and very powerful. And I, I couldn't explain it at the time, uh, but, but it was disturbing to me. Um, and, and it wasn't something that I mentioned to anyone at the time either, because I didn't know what it means. You know, I, I thought, well, this is just it's crazy, you know. Um, but that, that's that's what I felt. Yeah. And so, yes, to answer your question, they were absolutely related. They were related. So, uh, you know, just to just to catch you up a little bit, um, Kevin, um, he has 
he was on board the USS Roosevelt, like I said. And then he started having these experiences with what he considers some type of beings actually showed up. Um, and uh, it's profoundly changed his his life. And he says, you know, he would like to be for science to take, you know, it, it's a it was a hard thing for him to talk about. But, you know, would science at least look into this if this is happening um, to someone? How how would this be observed or whatever? How how would how would that even work? I mean, any ideas from? No, I don't have many ideas. Um, <clears throat> more questions than ideas at this point, really. But I, I think that the, there are not. Now that I've been looking into this more, you know, as a scientist, I appreciate that there are many more effects. You know the you know, high strangeness, whatever you want to call it, all of these things that happen and are associated with 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 UAPs or UFOs. Um, and at some point, we're going to have to come to terms with that. And I think it, this is going to be, it's a, if you think about how difficult it's been for anybody to get either our government officials or scientists interested in the fact that there might be a vehicle in the air that doesn't belong there. Um, these things are, you know, we've got incursions at nuclear weapon sites and still nobody's doing anything, it, it appears, right? And so what 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 is it going to take to get something, you know, somebody interested um, is a big, that's a big question and a valid question. And mm. And now when you consider these, these other effects that clearly happen to some degree. I mean, there's something, there's something going on because these aren't, these aren't isolated events. These happen to people all over the world and they're clearly right. related to this phenomenon. And, and they're yeah. much stranger than the craft that we're, you know, we're trying to understand at this point. So um, yeah, it's just going to yeah. take time. It's going to take time, but I have this, I, my impression is that, we are in for a pretty interesting ride um, in this century. We're going to have um, some big discoveries happen that nobody saw coming. And, and right. I think this is right. part of it. I, I think you're right. I, I, I'm hope, hoping I'm alive to see a, lo a lot of that. Uh, we are, we are, <clears throat> it's time for us to go into break. So we're going to go into break. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's see, we'll do this and this, and here we go. Um, so I, one thing I I forget to mention here on the show is all the music that I play is from, uh, including that, and my intros and everything that I play on this is uh, was all made by Carrie Lloyd Whitehouse. Um, he does uh, music for, for movies, a couple of really good movies out there that he's done a lot of uh, music for. He's in Ireland. So I wanted to give him credit for uh, that tune and all the others that, that are here. So bringing our guests back in. And we have Matthew and here's Kevin. So, uh, Kevin, so I told you that I would have, you know, int you introduce yourself. If you could just a little bit about your background and uh, 
the SCU, you're involved in that, which uh, I was really, I'm really glad that exists and that the people of science that are actually taking this thing seriously. Um, so anyway, your background, if you would, a little bit. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it, uh, it's good to see you again. Yeah. Um, I'm an associate professor of physics at the University at Albany in Albany, New York. Um, <clears throat> I've been there for 16 years and now. And uh, previous to that, I was a um, a computer scientist at NASA Ames Research Center in um, California. And let, let's see, my research at, here at UAlbany mainly consists of um, studying exoplanets. So I work to detect and characterize planets orbiting other stars um, using data from the Kepler Space Telescope and other, other sources. And, um, and I also do theoretical work in um, quantum, quantum information, quantum foundations as well as UAPs now. So, and and as you mentioned, I'm a member of SCU, which is the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. So it's a group of um, scientists and engineers and um, STEM professionals who are interested in studying UFOs seriously. And I'm also working with um, UAPX, which is a, a group founded by um, Senior Chief Kevin Day from the USS Princeton, from the Nimitz 2004 encounters, and um, Gary Voris is not currently the president. And we are um, working to collect our own data on UAPs, so. Interesting stuff. Uh, well, um, I know, you know, when I had you on before, I believed we, we spoke about a paper that you had written, UFO characteristics, I believe it was something along those lines. And right. what type of feedback have you had since uh, from that? Um, let's see. I've, I've gotten feedback from a number of scientists who yeah, very nice messages, thanking me for writing the, um, writing the paper and that it was shocking how, you know, how high some of these accelerations are and how um, the speeds that these craft move at. Um, there's been some criticism basically from uh, scientists who are um, preferring to espouse skepticism rather than actually looking into the problem. And um, they've compared you know, my research paper to blogs um, by people on the internet who have, you know, performed an analysis that certainly wasn't peer reviewed. And um, so, so it's a little surprising to see scientists comparing peer reviewed papers to blog posts. I think that's, I mean, that already is unprofessional and, but that's what you see scientists doing when they are confronted with this phenomenon. So, you know, I've had to have the analysis called simple um, in a recent New York Times editorial. And I'm going to not disagree with that. It wasn't very hard. It was, we were using, you know, physics that you learn in, you know, first year kinematics. So this is something that any physicist should have been able to do. They should have been able to do it on the back of a napkin in a restaurant. 
Seriously, we, we talk about back of the envelope calculation, we call them. Any physicist should have been able to get these back of the envelope calculations and should have done it before they open their mouth and start saying that these things aren't interesting. Um, so I'm mm. really shocked by that. And, um, and the fact that it's simple isn't a bad thing. The fact that it's simple means it's compelling. So, um, and we show that you know, in in several different um, cases of UFOs that have been observed, um, some of the case, one of the cases we used data from radar. Um, another case we um, used the Nimitz 2004 Nimitz video, but in all of those cases, the accelerations were higher than 75 times the acceleration of gravity, which is um, stunning. So amazing. Yeah, you know, there's and, and yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, to and I don't. Th I don't think people know, and I don't think people really understand how high those accelerations are in general. The um, so so let's say that you know your upper half of your body. I'm just going to use nice round numbers. The upper half of your body, let's say, weighs a hundred pounds. So so let's be. I'll be kind to myself. Say I weigh two hundred pounds total. So the upper half is a hundred pounds, and so now let's say I'm going to accelerate at a hundred g, right? And that means that that 100 pounds is going to feel 100 times heavier. It's going to be, feel like 10,000 pounds. You know, what's going to happen to the lower half of your body? There's no flight suit that can protect you from that. There's nothing you can do about that. You are literally going to be squished. Um, imagine putting 10,000 pounds on your head and seeing what, imagine what would happen. And that's at 100G acceleration. Now, if you, now in the, from the radar that um, Kevin Day um, was looking at on the USS Princeton, when these, these UAPs were dropping from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds, that acceleration is on the order of 5,000 times the acceleration of gravity. So imagine wow. taking that 100 pounds and now accelerating it at 1000 g you know or 5000 g that's that's a half a million pounds on your lower half of your body equipment won't most machines aren't going to survive things like that so um much less organisms um yeah anything and, that anything that we have that could possibly fly could not take that yeah. any type a fighter, of fighter our, our fight our best fighter jets can only handle about 13 g's before the wings get ripped off and mm -hmm. missiles are designed to handle about 30 g's and still be able to maneuver um if you go above 60 g the missile airframe will be destroyed so so these are really crazy accelerations it's not you know we use the term anomalous but i don't think people really appreciate how anomalous it really is and and then the, then you know and then of course you know those sci scientists often will then ask why why do people jump to the conclusion that these are spacecraft and my answer at this point is because they move as fast as spacecraft do it's simple this is really this isn't rocket science <laughs> at least not yet right um so but yeah, so when you're dropping from 28,000 feet to sea level and you do that in 0.78 seconds, the the minimum acceleration is 5,000 Gs. Now, of course, you can accelerate higher and then just coast the rest of the way down and then have a very high acceleration to stop. But 
the minimum acceleration happens when you accelerate halfway and then you decelerate the other half. And that would be mm. the 5,000 G acceleration. And so you can compute the, the velocity at the midpoint. At the midpoint, the velocity is on the order of about, um, it's around 40,000 miles an hour. Mm. So it's, it's like Mach 60. So the, the new horizons probe that we sent to Pluto currently is traveling at about 35,000 miles an hour. This Tic Tac was observed to move faster than the New Horizons space probe in the air without a sonic yeah. boom yeah. In, and got up to that speed, accelerated from zero to that speed in about three-tenths of a second. I'd like to have the, something I mean, that... I would, yeah, how are you not curious about that? You know, I, I think that's... Mm. How, how does that not interest a physicist or an engineer? One of the things, uh, you know, Matthew, you can reiterate what you said, but basically that um, these things are were flying around billions of dollars worth of sensory and with no explanation and no. Uh, and, and the thing I mentioned to you is, you know, I'm I, I'm surprised the military isn't more curious into researching these things. But, um, you know, just chime in if you would. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that it's it's absurd for people to think that um, you know uh, that we would we would misidentify balloons and uh, you know uh, other types of just mundane craft um, and that we wouldn't know what that is with the billions of dollars worth of equipment that are uh, positioned within these strike groups. Um, it's just it's laughable, really. Uh, that that anyone would think um, that we would misidentify something like that, um, right? It's, it's just nonsense. Uh, Kevin, do you think when it comes to this type of situation that we have the best bet through military uh, observation of getting to what these things are, or do you think in the private sector eventually someone's going to get interested enough to have really interesting equipment that might work with it? I think that we really, this is, this is sufficiently bizarre and concerning at this point that, um, that we need all, all those approaches. Um, we're going to need, you know, we're going to need military observations because we need to make sure they, they're in charge of national security. And these are, you know, when you get incursions on res in restricted airspace, um, that that's a national security issue, and and what worries me about the fact that you don't see there doesn't seem to be any reaction to these craft making these incursions into restricted airspace. I mean, they basically do it unimpeded, and it suggests to me that. If I made a sufficiently bizarre craft, I can fly it anywhere and nobody's going to do anything. <laughs> nobody's going to stop it. So I could Good make point. a really crazy drone, you know, that shoots laser beams or, you know, electricity, you know, <laughs> lightning bolts all over and something really crazy. And nobody's going to shoot it down. Nobody's going to report it. I can fly in, collect any data I want and leave or do any damage I want and leave. That's really what it suggests mm. to me. This is this is. Mm. This is, you know, the fact that nobody is doing anything is an intelligence failure and, and 
quite possibly if these things if these things do turn out to be alien this is probably the greatest intelligence failure in human history i mean we're going to be looking back at this really um and with a very different perspective than we are looking at it right now um right. and i now forgot your original question because i think i went off on a bit of a tangent <laughs> so uh, no, I was asking basically if if you think that military oh, the, whether is, the military, the, yeah, you I know think the observations. Yeah, the military is going to be able to get observations that no one else can, mainly because for a few reasons. One is these objects are interested in our military. They 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 hang out near our till when whenever there's military movements, they they show up. They show up in restricted spaces. They show up at nuclear weapon sites. They know, show up in nuclear storage air, weapon storage areas. Um, so the military is uniquely positioned to be able to collect data on these things because these things come to them. Um, and they have military have um, you know cameras and sensors on uh, fighter jets that can move at speeds that can respond to these things when they do show up some distance away. For the private sector to do that would be horribly expensive. And, um, and you would probably need a sensor network, you know, distributed over a wide area to be able to collect any useful data. Now, some of this is probably possible, you know, within the scientific community. Once you get many scientists involved, um, we have we already have networks like this for watching meteorites. The All Sky Network um, basically watches the sky for meteorites, and presumably that network should be collecting images of UAPs as well. And they probably are just being filtered out as not meteorites, um, because that's basically oh. how you analyze that kind of data. You you first get rid of all the noise, everything you're not interested in. So clearly that is, it made the 90 degree turn, clearly not a meteorite. So we <laughs> don't focus on that. Um, that's, and the same thing with with radar in, you know, at commercial airports, you, that those radar systems are designed to reduce clutter on the screen, you know, for the, for the um, air traffic control. And, <clears throat> And anything that doesn't act like an airplane is assumed to be noise and isn't displayed. So very often UFOs don't show up on on air traffic control screens for that reason. I had no idea about that. Yeah. I, I'd never heard that before. There's, it's, it's When you really get into this, which is one reason it's too bad that scientists aren't getting involved, because I think – you know, I, I, I've been curious and I'm even more curious all the time, but there's a lot of interesting stuff here and you start to understand why things don't happen. So why don't these things show up on radar? There's reasons. Why are the images always blurry? There's reasons for that too. There's often, uh, these craft often have plasma, they ionize the air around them and you get a plasma sheath. So you've got hot air, hot ionized air around the object and that blurs the image. Um, it'll blur a visible image. It'll blur an infrared image. Um, so there's reasons for this. Kevin, um, how would you explain, as a physicist, how would you explain how this these movements could avoid, you know, breaking the sound barrier? That's a big mystery. Um, that's really not clear to me at all. One of the assumptions is that 
<clears throat> these things are warping space-time in some way, and that somehow allows them to avoid, um, you know, causing problems like that. So basically, it's a separate bubble of space-time moving from one location to another. But I don't think that's happening all of the time. Uh, we've so the other possibility is that um, just like we are now using. Um, using laser beams to um, heat up the air in front of the in front of a hypersonic airplane you create a shock wave in front of the airplane so that the shock wave doesn't happen at the airplane so you basically fly behind the shock wave that allows you to go faster but in that case you still have a shock wave so so that's a bit different um, so it's really it's not obvious what's happening clearly the technology is sufficiently different and there's a lot to be learned here. And I think this is a, you know, if you were to do a, a cost-benefit analysis, the, the potential benefits, you know, to studying these things is, are incredibly high. And I'm just talking from a craft perspective. I'm not talking about the, the high strangeness and the personal experiences that people have, like Matthew was talking about. Those are, those are totally different experiences that are, you know, clearly related in some way. And, and you know, we apparently have a lot more to learn about the universe than we've, you know, are willing to admit. I agree. And Matthew, anytime you want to ask uh, Kevin a question, you know, feel free to. This is kind of yeah. like a round robin, anything, you, okay. you know, uh, related <laughs> to what he was speaking about. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, my, so, my uh, question is... Let me just ask... Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to ask... Kevin, why why do you think it is that this has been such taboo for so long uh, in the scientific community and continues to be? Uh, I mean, even even in light of recent events, you have people who are scientists, you know, uh, well known scientists coming out and saying, you know, this is just, you know, nothing. Uh, it's a nothing burger. Uh, even in light of the fact that the Navy is saying that these things are unidentified, so. Well, what do you think accounts for that in the scientific community? I, I, there's probably a few factors. Um, <clears throat> I think the first reason is that we've been told this our whole lives at this point. I mean, pretty much all of us who are alive, this, you know, if anybody who was born after 1947 has heard that these things are nonsense, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and so we've all been taught that that's the case and and that's hard to change that perspective once that's the, the consensus that's part of it um another part is that <clears throat> and especially in astronomy um, having taught astronomy i'm well aware of this is that you are often confronted with having to um, when you're teaching to having to dispel um, pseudoscientific notions. And astrology is a big component of that when you are teaching astronomy. So um, you have to, you know, you start talking about constellations and some of these are related to the astronomical signs or astrological signs. See, I made the mistake. The words are so similar that people confuse the two. Yes, yes. It, it happens yes. all the time. Yeah. And so, um, People confuse astrological signs and with with and think that astronomy is about astrology and so we are 
almost trained as this is that's too strong, but you really see the necessity when you're teaching these classes that you have to nip this in the bud <laughs> early on and make it clear to students that this is that kind of thinking isn't nonsense. There's no there's no data to support that and there's no obvious physical mechanisms to um to explain why you know why the moon is in pisces this week that you're going to meet the love of your life so um everybody one twelfth of the population is going to meet the love of their life that week it's yeah and so it's easy to dispel those notions so those are those are ancient ideas and um but we get into that mode where you almost feel it's your job to dispel um, these pseudoscientific notions. So I think that some astronomers, especially when they encounter the UFO phenomenon, are, you know, we've all been told our whole lives that it's nonsense. Um, there isn't a lot of, there isn't sci a lot of scientific data out there. That's true. Um, so they're kind of stuck in this, um, tautology where you we don't we don't study ufos because um there's no data on them and so they're not interesting and um there's no data on them because we don't study them and so you're stuck in this logical loop that when you step back it's quite obvious but but i think that there you know a lot of scientists are trying to do what they see is the right thing to do, which is dispel these pseudoscientific notions. The problem is that it's not all pseudoscience and um, that there is something to some of these phenomena and it needs to be studied first by scientists to be, you know, and then determined if there's something to it. Um, right. and that really hasn't happened. Um, you know, speaking of data, something that I, I kind of want to throw out there as, as another thing, uh, so a lot of people think that, you know, well, the government can just put this to bed by releasing, um, radar data, stuff like that. But the thing is, they're not going to release that because a lot, a lot of the capabilities of these radars are classified. And if you just release that data, uh, you're telling all of our adversaries, well, these are our radar capabilities, you know? Uh, and so I, I think people need to understand that that's just not going to happen. Um, they're, they're not going to let everyone in the world just see all of this radar data. Um, and, and so I, and I, I almost think it's, it's unreasonable to expect that you would, because uh, obviously you don't want China or Russia to know what our capabilities are. And I think that's perfectly logical. Um, so I, I think uh, to your point, Kevin, there are a lot of other people that are going to have to pick up that slack, uh, right. you know, in terms of like uh, these radars that they use at airports, like maybe let's, let's turn off that filter, um, you know, that, that would keep uh, only or, or save the unfiltered data at least. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so that people can take a look at that. Um, uh, and I think that that's worth doing and people need and to think, do that. I think, I think that's a great point, and, um, and I totally agree. And the another example is satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, I think John Radcliffe noted that there exist satellite images of UAPs, of UFOs. Wow. And, um, 
and we've been working to get satellite data as well at UAPX. So, um, and people have asked, scientists have asked, well, if there are satellites, all they need to do is release one satellite image of a UFO. And the problem with releasing a, a satellite image from a spy satellite, a high resolution spy satellite is one, like you're saying, you, you basically reveal your capabilities uh, to an adversary. The other problem is that, you know, you release an image of a UFO that was seen by, by Gladys in, um, in, you know, in South Dakota at 9.30 p.m., you know, just, out of, just outside of Aberdeen or something. And now all of a sudden you have, you have the location, you have the time, you have the imagery, and anyone who's clever enough and understands how orbits work can figure out the orbital elements of the satellite. Mm-hmm. That's why, so satellite imagery is classified, not because of what they take pictures of. It's because those pictures can tell you what orbit the satellite's in. And once you know what orbit the satellite's in, that means your adversary who's trying to deploy chemical weapons can say, oh, we know that the satellite's going to be flying over at five o'clock, so we got to get the tarps over our chemical weapons, and then it should be passed at 5.30, and we'll take the tarps off, and we can work again. So that's why they can't release satellite images. It's not going to happen. And so, so we're working... Points, yeah. Yeah, we're working with but private can- companies to try to try to get satellite image, imagery for that reason. Okay. Well, here's the answer if you look up on the screen to everything right here. <laughs> that's uh, that's right. the answer right there. Yeah. So uh, making mockery of this as 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 uh, as we've seen as we've seen. Um, I there's a good a very good point, uh, Kevin, to what you're talking about earlier up in the chat, and I'm going to put it up here if I can. Uh, here it is, right here. It's by Richard C. Um, if their propulsion systems cause blurriness, why why don't eyewitnesses report them as being blurry? Because if you're well, if you are getting if you have a camera image where you don't have a very you don't have a powerful telephoto lens, you're not getting a good image in the first place. So if you try to magnify it, you're you're I mean you're not seeing you're seeing a dot in the sky or something very far away. So. So in those cases, I mean, it's it's when you get when you have somebody with a telephoto lens that is trying to take an image, you can get images of the plasma sheath, and you can see the craft inside of it, and and you can get images like that. But but very often the cameras that are being used aren't the best cameras for this. So I mean, people are pulling out the camera they got in their pocket or in their in their dash, you know, in their um, in their glove box in their in their car, and and taking a snapping a quick photo <clears throat> here's well, another question these people uh, aren't professional yeah. photogra- photographers i mean you've seen photos that right. people take where you know where here's our here's our family and they're all down here right <laughs> i mean this happens all yeah. the time you know yeah. people are not yeah. people I, I i i do wildlife photography and um people are really pretty bad at taking pictures in general yeah um so um I, I want to take calls. I think this would be a great time to bring calls in here, but um, and they can ask you know any of you a question. But um, uh, this gentleman, Mitchell, I guess, uh, wanted to know uh, what is the geo 
geodesic effect. Kevin, do you, I don't know you, what he's referring to in that case. Oh, okay. So I, I, I mean, never heard I of it before, little, but I a thought a little more detail. Yeah, I don't. I don't recognize okay. the name. Um, All right. Well, here's the here's the, the situation. If you'd like to call in, whoever that was that uh, uh, posted that, um, you can call in and explain more. And the call in line is 855-472-5483. And Bill is standing by. Uh, we'll screen your call. And um, there's another question that Bill actually asked is he wanted to know, is it possible that a device, drone, craft, et cetera, could be emitting an energy bubble, which would appear as a seamless, no fuselage, et cetera, by means of some advanced form of propulsion? That's pretty heavy, Bill. Yeah, I don't know what an energy bubble would be. I mean, you have to – energy is very specific. When physicists use the term energy, we um, mean it to mean very specific things. So what kind of energy? A gravitational potential energy, kinetic energy. It's not clear what an energy bubble would mean. So, Okay. All right. So well, we have uh, – we have – go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, please. That's That was it. All right. All right. So we have Carrie on the line from California. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Sure. Hi, Martin. Hi, Matthew. Hi, uh, Kevin. Uh, great okay. to see you guys. Um, all I was going to do was tell you, basically, I can tell you what the report that's going to come out is going to be. It's going to be a general Sanford moment. They're going to have incredible observers of relatively incredible things. And we're going to start Project Blue Book with Hector Quintero again, something like that. You know, one officer and one secretary. That's what we're going to get. Well, I, I think it's interesting, and that is one of the topics that I did want to bring up um, today. What? Any thoughts on that, either one of you? The lines are filling up, by the way. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what this report is going to say. I, I, my hope is that uh, anything short of uh, complete transparency is un, unacceptable. Um, to be honest with you, I. This, these are our taxpayer payer dollars that are being spent here. Um, yeah. and, and we have the right to know. Um, everyone has the right to know. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I, I think yeah. that, I think that's a good point, especially if there, especially if it turns out that these, that personal interactions with, with, you know, with beings or whatever uh, are happening, you know, related to UFOs. Um, then it would be inconscionable not to let the public know this is happening and not come up with ways to try to protect them or figure out what's hap what's happening to them, what's being done to people, and and what the what the intent is. Intent is everything, right? Here and moreover, if these are truly anomalous, and we do know other countries are having problems with these, China has its own UAP task force now, and. This is a global problem, and and depending on what the what's actually happening, uh, this could possibly be one of the biggest global problems that we face. Um, and and I think it's important for this information to come out. We've had we've had seventy five years of secrecy. We've had seventy five years of scientists not interested in studying the problem, and at this point, we're we are just as ignorant about what these things are as we were in 1947, which is really exactly. ignorance is a really bad state to be in, um, especially when you 
have a potential serious problem and when when it's affecting people i mean so this is this is causing distress in pilots it's causing problems with the military it's causing problems with individuals and um and we need to do something about this we need to figure out what's going on i i think right. that that could be a reason for the secrecy because you know, in order to acknowledge this, you also have to acknowledge the whole aspect of uh, personal experiences. And and then the question becomes, well, government, what are you going to do about it? And, and one of the things I say very early in my book is that, you know, it, it really sunk in with me when I started having these experiences with beings in my room at night, that there was nothing anybody could do about that. Uh, and I knew that. I, I knew that I couldn't go to work and say, "Hey, protect me from this." They can't, you know. And and, and so then the question becomes, "Well, what are we going to do about it?" And uh, that answer is not is not clear, you know. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think people don't appreciate the 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 fear that others feel when they have those experiences and and when you realize there's nothing anyone can do about it you can't go for help i mean who do you call for help uh, you know i you after the fact you tell the police you know you tell what, what's going to happen is you're going to have to tell your psychologist is what's going to happen <laughs> and that's not going to be helpful so there a lot of people are really really suffer from these these issues and it would be nice to know what's really going on Carrie, thanks so much for the call. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you, Carrie. Take care. Uh, we have uh, Seth from Wyoming on hold, and welcome to the show, Seth. Hey there, Seth. You there? Yes. Are you there, Seth? Yeah, hi. You have a question for one of yeah, our hi. guests tonight? Am I on? You are on. Yes. Uh, yes, I do. Okay, yes, I do. I got two questions, if you don't mind. Fire away. Uh, the first one being, thank you. The first one's for Kevin. Uh, I want to know what he would think of uh, electromagnetic uh, magnetic pulse and its effect on these moving objects. Not that I condone shooting something down that doesn't mean us any harm. I just want to know what he would think of the effects. That's my first question. Uh, so a very strong electromagnetic pulse and an effect. its effect on the living objects or the craft or... Craft. I mean, it's yeah, the craft. I mean, it potentially could affect the craft. We it depends on how the craft operate, and um, and we don't know the answer to that at this point. So it may have a huge effect. It may have no effect. Um, that I think would I really can't address that. Um, typically, we use EMP pulses to take out electronics. So a huge electromagnetic pulse induces currents into your microchips, basically burn them out. So you can destroy electronics that way. Um, they might not use electronics. They might use photonics with fiber optic cables, in which case an EMP pulse would have no effect on their electron on their, you know, photonic systems if that's what they used. So, um, so it's hard to say. What's your next question? Okay. And I guess my second question is is how to. Okay, my next question is how to uh, affect the conversation moving forward. Uh, for instance, I would love to see you and your other guests today um, have a podcast of Joe Rogan moderating a debate between you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Mick West so that we can address <laughs> all audiences, all audiences would watch, and 
it'd be a, a way to kind of debunk a lot of their uh, half-baked... They're debunking. Debunking. Yeah. Debunking, yeah. debunking. Speaking of that, I have Chris... Yeah, I think, I th really quickly, I think that... Um, I think that if Mick West wrote a scientific paper and had it peer-reviewed and published, I would pay some attention. I'm not going to pay attention to blog posts or YouTube YouTube demonstrations of that this stuff was nonsense. I mean, we, we studied this extensively. We at SEU, um, SEU put out a report where we looked at what happens to the accelerations if the sizes were different, you know, because we needed to know the size of the object to get the acceleration from the Nimitz video. And... Um, <clears throat> And even if the thing was four feet long, then it would have accelerated at seven and a half G, which is still surprising with no heat signature. So you still have something anomalous. So, so I don't, you know, but I, I, I'm not really, I'll be honest, as a scientist, I'm not willing to, we, we have a saying, it's not, it's not helpful to put out brush fires and, um, I consider that to be a brush fire. If he wants to publish a peer-reviewed paper somewhere, and um, then I then I'd be happy to take a look at it and really, really, really dig deep. Kevin, uh, so along those lines, why do you think the media is paying attention to Mick West? They, I've seen him on you know news shows. Uh, they're, they're they're you think they're just someone is just researching online and say, oh, this guy makes a good point against it. Let's put him on. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, the media always has this feeling that they have to have both sides represented. Yeah. The problem is yeah. that both sides aren't aren't are often not equivalent. And so Yeah. But that's how the media works. The media is interested yeah. in getting viewership, so controversy's great. Exactly. Seth, thanks for the call. Hey, thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Seth. All right, next we have uh, Rick calling from Oklahoma. Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I, have, I was just curious if um, you feel that uh, the military, for those of us who have, who have looked into this, and I've, I've, I've been looking into this ever since I was a, a child. Um, I'm 50 years old now, and I've kind of seen this um, all coming to light now, and I see some scientists, including yourself, that are they're very interested in that, and I'm excited about that. But it, it appears to me that there's a a large amount of research that was done or has been done by the military that's kind of kept in the background. And I was wondering, um, do you feel like that it, that information is uh, that maybe the military has information that they're not? Um, um, willing to come out with it, it, it almost feels like like the military itself is uh, saying, "Well, we, we've just discovered this too with you, and here it is, and let's all figure it out together." And it, it appears to me that they 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 know a lot, maybe in the um, in the scientific realm of this. That obviously, they can't or won't disclose. Um, do, do you feel? That, that that's the case that you're playing catch up uh, that the scientific community that is interested in this is, is, is playing catch up and, and may not ever get to the point there were 70 years behind what, what the military has been doing with the subject. 
I'll let I'll let uh, Matthew handle this one if you would, Matthew. Um, well, I, I I think that you know uh, the military probably does have a lot more uh, information, um, but they're you know just like Kevin said earlier, there are a multitude of reasons as to why that information cannot be released, such as satellite imagery, uh, radar data, and that's simply because you're going to be broadcasting to all of our adversaries what our capabilities are. And, and that's, that's kind of, and, I, and I, I understand that, you know, everybody wants that data, but I, I, I don't think we're going to be able to get it. What we have to do is uh, we have to get scientists like Kevin on board who can uh, study this, who can use different types of sensors that uh, the military doesn't have classified behind closed doors. Uh, because those, those sensors are just as good at picking this stuff up. Um, and, uh, I, and I think that you can study it that way. Um, but I, I don't think that that's going to happen until the government comes out and says, yes, there's something there, you know? And, and that's, that's the big question. What are they going to say in this report? And we, we just don't know yet. Um, we don't know. And, and absolutely, I think you're right. I think, uh, the scientific community is 70 years behind on this. Um, and there, there are a multitude of reasons for that as well. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I am a big proponent of the fact that, okay, you know, this happened. Uh, people have kept it a secret for 70 years. Let's just out with it. Let's forget about it. And, and let's get on with figuring this out. Um, we don't, we don't, I, I don't think it's helpful to rehash the past. In other words, the people who locked this up initially behind closed doors 70 years ago, they're dead. You know, they, there's not going to be any accountability for that. Uh, so, so why, why rehash that? Let's just, let's have the real conversation now. Uh, let's, let's figure this out and get to the bottom of it. Um, and I, and I think it's time for the government to acknowledge uh, that there is something there, even if they can't come out with uh, radar imagery and, and, and satellite imagery. I, I think that's okay. As long as they can start to get science on board uh, with this, that's all I want to see. That's all I want to see. Yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally agree, and I I think um, <clears throat> I think that's exactly right. And the ways that the one of the best things that Congress could do at this point is to is to acknowledge that these things are interesting, to rule out the hypotheses that they can rule out at this point, um, and to provide funding for scientists to study these things. I think that would be the most important thing. Scientists aren't going to be able to study them without funding. You will need to get equipment. You're going to need to go, you know, place up sky watching systems and and collect data and and all of this. And and scientists are busy doing other things. You know, we have funding to do other work. So why do that work? And so if you really want this to be studied, um, you need to provide some kind of funding. And you know, we heard from. 
um, NASA administrator um, Bill Nelson that he is yeah. has directed some NASA scientists to study UAPs. Now, yeah. that's interesting to me because when I was at NASA, we had um, what was called full cost accounting, where you weren't allowed to do any work on a topic unless you were funded to do it. So you had funding through NASA to do this work. So that makes me wonder what are the funding mechanisms that, you know, they're used if they, if they still have full cost accounting like this, I don't know the details anymore. I haven't been out of NASA for 15 years now, but, but if, if the, if that's how it works, then what, how are those who are those scientists that he has working on this problem and how are they being funded to work on this? And, you know, are those funding channels open to academics as well? Because most NASA funding channels are open to both NASA employees and academics. So and, you, you I know, think those uh, are important uh, questions. One, one, more quick, one more quick question for Kevin. Have you, have you taken any look at the, um, at, the videos and information from Mark McClandish, who basically gives a description of a, a, a blueprint on how to build an anti-gravity machine. I, I, I don't know if you've looked into that, but it's, it's fairly interesting, um, interesting information. And if you haven't, I, I challenge you to take a look at it. His name's Mark McClandish. And I will, I will get off the phone here. No, thank you. No, I haven't, I haven't looked Thanks at that. Um, there's another thing about scientists is there is a lot to study. There's a lot to do. And um, we often play, we often perform triage, much like, you know, a, somebody, a medic in an emergency room does. You, you, our triage is a bit different. We look at and see, is this a problem I can, I feel I can make some headway in? Would there be some benefit to me, for me to make headway on this problem? And um, and those are the problems you choose to study. And that's one reason why scientists don't study UFOs. They look at it and say, I don't think I can make much headway on this. Um, I'm going to get ridiculed by my colleagues. I'm going to, I have no idea how to collect information on UFOs. I don't know where to start. So that's, and who would, who would fund that, like Kevin? Yeah. Kevin, who would fund, could, who could like fund something like that? Well, certainly um, NASA could, the NSF could. Um, uh, NOAA could, if if you're looking for atmospheric effects, um, the Department of the DOE, the Department of Energy could, the Navy could fund it, the Air Force could fund it. So there are a lot of possibilities there. Yeah, and uh, something I was just going to say too is that we could we could task the task force to do this. I mean, yeah. you you can have this task force use unclassified sensors and go out there and look at these things. Um, that that's not outside the realm of possibility and then hire scientists, you know, so maybe the answer is to fund the task force, give them money so that they can hire scientists, psychologists, whoever they have to, um, to study this, um, and take it seriously. And then those things don't have to be classified. Uh, I mean, those could be unclassified systems. Well, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you really think about it, and Kevin, I think I heard you say this, you know, this is most likely would be the most, the biggest thing that was ever discovered if we could actually figure this thing out. You know, and I think a lot of people are feeling the same way about that now that it's so much in the news. Um, you know, there's a lot more curiosity. There's a lot more people that are new that are emailing me that said, hey, look, you know, I just started looking into this and 
you know, it's fascinating and, you know, asking me, you know, some questions or advice or whatever, where to go. And, um, but anyway, I, I'm surprised that, you know, there isn't, and I don't know who would initiate something like this, but why isn't there, you know, really a big push? Like, let's figure this thing out. Let's go, let's go on it. You know, I mean, we have the task force, but I mean, how aggressive are they going to be? You know, I mean, is, right. is it just going to be a report and that's it? And then, you know, move on. Like we've seen, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say we've seen, but we can look in the history of this phenomenon. We see it happen many times. So. Yeah. And, and, and um, Richard Haynes, uh, formerly of NASA has written several papers on the, on air safety issues related to UAPs. And we've heard, you know, in the last year, we've heard several cases where you've got commercial pilots with, you know, UFAs, UAPs flying up to their windscreen and then taking off again and them having to veer off course or, or evade these objects. When you got 200 passengers in the back, and that should be yeah. a concern. I mean, we should be worried about that, you know, and of course, the military ought to be worried about their pilots. You know, they, you know, they've got their pilots encountering these things too. Um, right. There, there oh, should oh, at I least be concern for yeah. those who are, those who are involved with these things. Right. I didn't realize that we had a couple of callers still remaining. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. uh, Drew Sorry. from Toronto. Yeah, Drew from Toronto. Welcome to the show. Drew, you there? Oh, hi. hi there. Yeah, I am. I, the power just went out quickly here, and I just I just heard from Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I have. A, it's going to be Men in Black. Yeah, I mean they're, they're getting us all tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, I have a question for uh, Kevin. Uh, yeah, fire. The, the theoretical means for overcoming the instantaneous uh, speed seen and uh, G-forces involved. Uh, it seems like the the major issue is overcoming inertia without turning the pilots into tomato paste or, you know, tearing the object apart. So I was wondering if it um, would be, would the idea of pulling space-time towards the object solve that problem? And is that the same as a warp bubble? And um, would there be a physical effect to a local observer? If that was what, what was the last? What was the last thing? And there'd be a, what kind of effect? Uh, it would if there would be a visible effect to a local observer. Say somebody oh, I see. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, so that's that's one of the ideas, and that that the the Alcubierre warp drive concept is that you basically are pulling space-time toward, you know, toward the um, craft and then pushing it out away from the craft in the back. So the way that that's observable is is by looking for Doppler shifts. So just as um, gravity, as you get, as light leaves a gravitational well, um, you get what's called a redshift. So the, um, so pulling the space-time toward the ship is going to create a redshift out the front. So if you look at the light coming off of the craft, it'll be more red in the front and more blue in the back, basically, um, if it's accelerating that way. Or if the object's hovering, it ought to be more blue on the bottom because you're trying, you're repelling gravity here and, and, and pulling up here. So it'll be red on the top and bluish on the bottom. Now, you, and a, a regular observer probably wouldn't notice this, but you could detect this if you had what's called a spectrometer where you basically break the light up into its its constituent colors and you can actually see the um 
the shift in the spectrum, you know, um, based on what side of the craft you're looking at. So there is an observable effect there. And in fact, I, I discussed this with Lou Elizondo at one point, and he indicated that they had actually measured the spectra of some objects and found that to be the case. So they have some reason to believe that the um, that these things are using some kind of warp drive. But it doesn't appear that all of, all of the craft are, or they're not always using it. So there may be other methods of propulsion here, just like just like we have diesel diesel trucks, you know, gasoline powered cars, hybrid cars, electric cars, um, motorcycles. We have many different means of propulsion. Excellent. Well, I'm going to try to get this next caller in. Thanks so much uh, for the call. And uh, uh, Drew, we're going to bring in our next caller because we only have we have less than two minutes left. So, John from California, you got a quick one for us. Yes, um, I just want to ask. I just want to ask Matthew or Kevin if if the report comes out and let's say there's congressional hearings, why couldn't Congress give people like Hal Putoff, Eric Davis, and Lou Elizondo immunity from their NDA just to say whether or not there are crash mm -hmm. retrievals? without endangering the security of the country. Could that be said? Yes or no, There's are, there are crash retrievals. It's classified, we can't talk about that. But yes, it's true. And, and giving them immunity would then, you know, open up the door for the conversation. I, I understand we have okay. to speak, and that's yeah. fine. We get, we get, I'm sorry, we have one minute left. So well, anyone I, wanna, go ahead. I, I don't think that immunity would be necessary uh, and it wouldn't necessarily be made public, but Congress def definitely has uh, the ability to do uh, closed hearings. So they'll have a hearing with congressmen that are cleared uh, and they will ask serious questions um, that may not be available to the public, however. But I, I think I, I, I can guarantee you behind closed doors that's going to be happening. Excellent. Well, thank you uh, both so much. It's been a real pleasure. I've had a lot of uh, fun tonight with you uh, both. And uh, again, um, I mentioned earlier, Contact in the Desert is June 25th um, through the 29th, and it's online this year. And you can see uh, Matthew there. And Kevin, thanks so much for uh, fixing your computer so you can be on with us tonight. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to meet you, Matthew. Thank you, Kevin. Pleasure right. to meet you. Take care. All right, so next week we have Preston Dennett on, and so check us out. We'll be back, and remember, everyone, to keep your eyes to the sky. Thanks for watching.